20, if we pick up in verse 7, we see here has this credible event, this credible, incredible event unfolds. And we'll go read this passage here and go back a little bit from a couple weeks ago when we last met. And we'll get started here. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we read, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep, he, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, "Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him." When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive. And we're not a little comforted. Well, as we go back, we go back as we left off with the discussion, if you remember a couple weeks ago, on the significance of the first day of the week and why do we worship on the first day of the week. Well, I think there's more, there's more of a practicality to that than there is maybe a spiritual dominion mandate that you have to worship at a specific time. But I think the practicality and the standard that's been set in the Christian church is extremely important for us to identify. Because if we look at that and we look at the standard and see what could happen if there's no standard, it becomes nothing like a but a cacophony, a big mess where nobody can agree on anything. I think that's very important. You see in Matthew 28.1, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to draw toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and and the other married to see the sepulcher. Go to Mark 16, 2. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Luke 24, 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And I just, you know, I, I think that it's very important that we understand that the way that we worship is the first day of the week. Well, you have to put it like this, because there's been a lot of questions about this. We've had them here in the church, questions from a couple people that really wondering why does it have to be the first day of the week? Well, let's take basically on a more practical level, what would it be like if we came in on Sunday morning, you have the bulletin, and there's the, the service, the, the opening exercises laid out step by step. Well, what would happen if nobody could agree to that? One person said, well, I don't want to do the the response of reading. Another person said, I don't want to sing that song. I don't like the way that song is. Another one says, I don't want to play the piano. I don't want to do the offering. Nothing would happen. So there has to be a standard, right? If you look at it, the bulletin in those opening exercises is church discipline. That's a, it's a little tidbit of church discipline where we get together and we agree on how we're going to worship. And so part of that standard was set in the early Christian church by the Apostolic Commission that we will all get together and agree to do this on the first day of the week, on the Sabbath day, to honor the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor. Amen. Right. 
Amen. And that standard is important for us to, to have that in agreement. That's why we have congregational meetings. That's a very important point. Because without standards, you have basically what's going on out in our government today. What standard is there? What, I mean, look at that. Laws are being passed with no standard. All these things are happening with no standards. And you have just people. It's just nothing but a mess. So basically, the first day of the week is the agreement. And it's important to understand that because that's basically why we do it. This is the early Christian church. If you look down through the centuries, why the book of Acts is so important. I hope it's important to you, but it's important to me. If you, if you see any culture that turns its back on its standards and its laws and its heritage and its history, a lot of times, most of the time, they're eradicated from history. Look at all of the pagan cultures that you don't even hear about anymore. When you turn your back on your history and your standards and your culture, you have a real problem. And so this is the way it was. It was the first day of the week, and that's how we worship. And these standards are important. And here we see Paul reifying again, first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay him in store, lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Revelations 1, 5, we were reading about that, about how, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. John the Beloved identifies that, and the question is, he goes back and he says, the Lord's day in Revelations 10.1, what is it talking about in that verse? What was the day that Christ resurrected from the dead to wash away our sins? It was the first day of the week. And so there's a lot of evidence to back this up, and I don't think that it's that hard to understand, but there's a lot of question about it. John is praising the Lord for a sacrifice we see here. The first day of the week is historically known as the Sabbath day because it is a sign between Christ and His church to be raised from the dead on the first day of the week. This is an apostolic commission as we follow the work of the apostles on the first day of the week. And I think that's, that's wonderful. Well, we left off last time. We were worshiping, talking about worshiping on the first day of the week. We were talking about the Hebrew root movement that's out there today. Has anybody heard about that? Anybody heard of the significance of that today? Well, I said I'd read the rest of the article. We read the first couple of um, sentences, and I'm going to read the, the rest of this article. And this Hebrew root movement is very interesting today. Hebrew roots movement... They worship the Sabbath day on Saturday, and here's a statement that I read that actually came out from Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. The quote is, It is difficult to document the movement's history because of its lack of organizational structure, but the modern Hebrew roots movement has been influenced in some ways by Seventh-day Adventism and the worldwide Church of God during the lifetime of its founder, Herbert W. Armstrong. Additionally, the Hebrew roots movement's Movement has been influenced by the practice of Messianic Jews, but the similarities between the groups are superficial and should not be conflated. In fact, some Messianic Jew, Jewish organizations have denounced the belief of the HRM, Hebrew Roots Movement. The past few decades have witnessed a growing influence of this movement among conservative Christians. It is not unusual to see some HRM proponents give themselves Hebrew names, identify as Torah observant and writing different ways, different forms of the word God, um, eating only kosher foods, and they claim that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew, or at least several books were. 
They condemn numerous Christian traditions as pagan and dismiss teachings from Paul's epistles. Some have gone so far as to challenge Orthodox Christian beliefs such as the Trinity and even the deity of Christ. Fundamentally, the HRM teaches that many modern Christian beliefs and practices were introduced to the church by pagan Greeks. This is why they generally do not like to be identified as Christians and said they believe that they need to recover the first century Hebrew roots of Christianity. This is an upcoming thing that's going on and basically what they're saying is is they're following the Torah. They're not following the interpretation of God's law from Christ, but what's happened back in the Pentateuch. And so they worship on on Saturday. Um, I happen to, what I've read is a lot of them can't, they do not have a local temple to go to, so they worship remotely, basically online. And that's, that's not unusual. So anyway, I think that's a very important application of why it's, uh, the first day of the week is important for us to worship. If Christ rose on the first day of the week, if the apostles worshipped on the first day of the week, even though they for a time preached in the synagogues on the former Sabbath day to reach the unbelieving Jew, Jews, we too must follow that direction. So, the first day of the week, something happens. Paul goes into Troas, and remember we were talking about how he was going to to, uh, sail all the way from the areas up around Greece and up around Myasia and all these areas and go all the way down into Syria above Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit directed him into these Greek areas, into the northwest portion of Asia Minor. And here he winds up at Troas. Does anybody remember what happened in Troas? We had just studied it a few months ago, several months ago, in Acts chapter 16. Anybody remember what happened to Paul? They were meeting in Troas. They came together to break bread in a little small home church. Paul preached, and it was no doubt a private house and was known as a garret, not much more than a tall room or an unfinished structure, maybe under a roof. But back in Acts chapter 16, that's when Paul saw a vision. What's that? No, he was, um, he was actually, he had a vision. And this man said that he would actually go to Europe. And he, he was at, at the time in Troas saying that he would actually go to Europe and his missionary, uh, his, his missionary journey would expand. Then he would come back to Troas. And he was actually, it was foretold, it was a prophecy. And so this is the second time Paul had been back to Troas. We'll talk about Troas in a minute. Any questions, anything before I go forward? All right, so we're going to be hitting a, new, a little bit of a new part here. So anyway, they go to this house in Troas. And basically to testify their joint concurrence in the same faith and worship of the Christian church, they broke bread, they had communion. The early Christian church often broke bread to honor Christ's resurrection. They would perform this as Christ did in the upper room by commemorating the breaking of Christ's body as a symbol not a physical reproduction as, as, as some do or some corporeal ceremony. It was a symbolic uh, respect and reverence for our Lord Jesus Christ that they would break bread together and that they would worship in communion. And this is something we see here. And we see here that this, this communion consists of relating to what we have read and when we participate in communion like we will next week, it's the breaking of the Lord's bread, drinking of His blood. It's symbolic. We don't bring, we don't, never in this church do we actually 
use it as a form of transubstantiation, as an actual bringing the physical body of the Lord here, that we're actually having the power to break His body. But it's symbolic. That's what it is. We see 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. And so the Lord commanded us to do that. It's very important. All right, so going forward, something happens. I've always, I've, I've loved this story since I was a kid. I remember, remember hearing as a kid. And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech until midnight. Paul starts preaching after dinner. He had, it didn't bother him. This was time when everybody could get together that Sabbath day on the evening and he could preach and speak to them one last time. And so he just lets it all out there on the table. He goes at it. And he starts preaching his heart out and he's there for hours. And I don't know if you've ever been to any like Bible conferences, but I remember when we were kids, my father would take us to the Bible conferences with Dr. McIntyre then in Florida, Cape Canaveral. We were actually got to see Shelton College and I remember he preached one night. I think he started at 8 o'clock. He was preaching until 12 o'clock. And I can remember being asleep half the time because I was a kid. But I remember while I was awake, a lot of people were just loving that message. He was, I mean, he'd let it fly. He'd let it go. And he wouldn't hold anything back. Later on in this chapter, you'll see in Acts 20, Paul comes back and he says, I held nothing back. I preached the whole council. And there's nothing he held back. And so this is what Paul would do. And as he had the Old Testament, he would go through the Old Testament, he would preach his heart out. And then something happens. First of all, Troas is an important city on the coast of Myasia. Located in northwest Asia Minor, it's now modern Turkey. It was at Troas where Paul saw a vision of this man. And I want to go back and read those verses real quick. I'll tell you what, somebody look that up, Acts 16, verses 8 and 9, if you could read that. And basically, I want to just look at the little bit of history. I like to go back and do history. And this is what happened with Paul back in Troas before he came back to Troas this time. Whoever has that. Thank you, Faith. Can you go back and read verse 8? Thank you. You see that? And what I like to look about, look and see this, you can actually go into some of these. I have these old Bible dictionaries, and I love to leaf through them, and I go into Troas, and there's pictures of archaeological finds that they've had. All of this is absolute, unequivocal proof that these things did happen. It's perfect proof. The archaeological finds in Troas, they found baths, they found pictures, they found all kinds of buildings. And some of them still exist in Troas. And so basically what happens, what they find in these archaeological digs, lines up basically with what happened in the time frame. So when you hear people calling the Bible mythological and all of this stuff didn't happen, that's a lie. That's a complete lie. And here, Troas is a real place. Paul's a real apostle. He's preaching in a real church with real people. And then there's a real miracle that happens. And how, we, how far are we supposed to believe this? How far are we supposed to let our imaginations run away with this? Anybody? 190%. <laughs> believe every word, every letter. Line upon line, verse upon verse, we believe every bit of this. And this happened. So he goes in, and Paul's here. 
He had received the vision from Troas. We know the Holy Spirit was with him. And he encounters something in this building. And we see in verse 7, he continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Now that little verse gives us some clues as to what may have happened. And we're going to put a little bit of perhapses in here. Maybe we'll see where we can get to this. But what happens is a young man named Eutychus, he comes in, and why, it doesn't say exactly why, he got up on some ladder and climbed to the third loft, but it was higher than this, probably. Sitting in a window kind of like that. Probably about another, that would probably be as high as the second loft if you sat in that round window or that one. Go up another distance, about the same distance, a third of the way up more. That's probably where he was, how far and how high he was sitting in a loft. And so we had mentioned about how this house was like a garret. Basically, the Christian church was mainly meeting in, in houses and in small houses, little small churches. And so this one had a third loft, and we can imagine that the reason why he went up into that third loft, he was a young man, perhaps his parents were there, and we can imagine the reason he did that is it was crowded. People had heard Paul the Apostle would be there, and since it was crowded, there may not have been a whole lot of room for him to sit, but he was a young man, and he was like, I'm going to go try to get up on that third loft, and I'm going to have a real good vision of what's going on here. That's how kids are. Didn't you like, guys especially, didn't you like climbing when you were a kid? Didn't you like doing that? Remember climbing? I remember having this old maple tree in our front yard, and I would climb as high up in that thing as I could, and I'd sit there for hours, and I'd take a hammer and nails, and I'd put a steering wheel, and I'd put all this stuff and made it like a ship. And I just loved doing that kind of, you just loved climbing. Or I'd go out on the roof and sit out on the roof and stuff. And that's what happened. You see, Peter did that when he saw the vision. He climbed out on the roof because there was all these, these, these uh, clamoring women chattering down in the house, and he wanted to get away from them. He gets up on the top of the, of the roof, and he sees this incredible vision. Well, this is what Eutychus did. He got up and he went on the third loft. Eutychus' name means, if you want to put it in Latin terms, bene fortunatus. And that means, let's look at that. I think his name is interesting. Bene comes from the Latin where it has the meaning like the words in this, this prefix is used in the words benediction, benefactor, beneficent, beneficial, benefit, benevolent. It means well. That's what bene means. So his name meant bene fortunatus. So we start the first part, it means well. Look at the second part, we know what that means. Fortunatus means fortunate or one who has amassed much. And you put this together and we find that Eutychus' name means fortunate or well fortune. Much fortune. So the Greeks basically, <laughs> basically uh, translate his name as mean he was a real lucky guy. <laughs> we know that as Christians, we don't call, we don't believe in luck, and we don't believe in fortune. But what happens to him here, you would think he hit the lottery. So what happens is a certain young male he's attending, the service he's with this congregation. He was, now before the, he was now before the Lord in this service, in a sanctuary, and it's in session, and Paul is in the middle of preaching. And so maybe this gives us a little bit of an idea how dangerous it is to fall asleep when we're in sitting and listening to the God's Word, that this could be a little dangerous. So if anybody wants to hop up there and try to sit and listen and they fall out, there's not going to be any Paul the Apostle to raise you from the dead, so be very careful with that.
The service is with this congregation. We can imagine a sizable turnout into this building, or that young Eutychus would most likely have not felt the need to climb up to get there if there would have been room downstairs. Perhaps there would have been, it was pretty crowded. He falls asleep at the sermon. We see what his name means. And we see here that this was possibly an infirmity that had overtaken him with the fact that I find this fascinating. Now, think about, you have to think about the time frame this happened. You have to think about where they were and what time of day it was. This is another one of these perhaps statements. It's a little bit of conspiracy theory. I did some reading and I, you know, I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting. They're going in after supper. So what happens after supper? The lights go down and it gets dark out. They're in the house. It says they're, they're opening, they're, they're reading scripture and they needed light. That's why they needed light. So what kind of light would they had back then? Yes. Lisa. Yes. Anybody else? Candles, oil lamps. There could have been like uh, torches. So, that's right. So think about that. This is a young man. He's got plenty of energy. He climbs up to the loft. He's certainly not climbing up there because he has any health issues. I mean, if he was, he was like impotent or if he had some kind of palsy or something, he wouldn't have been able to do that. So he's very young. He's a young man. And basically, the t- interpretation, you would never find the word teenager in old writings. It's basically you're a young person when you're about 13 years old heading into your 20s. You're a young man, so he's probably somewhere, maybe in his low to mid-teens, somewhere in that area. So there's a lot of people. He's up on the third loft, and it says that he sunk down. Now, I made, Lisa and I were talking, man, I made a mistake. I told her it says it's, he slumped down. That's not true. He sunk down. So basically what Dave says is a good clue. What if he was sitting up on the third loft, and he's trying to see everything, and all the smoke's coming up from the... From, from candles and from torches and all, and he's, he's breathing in all that smoke. It says that he sunk down, which means that he slowly went into this deep sleep and he just flew right off of there. So maybe that's what happened. Anybody have any comments, anything to ask or anything to talk about? Okay. So that's a possibility. It says that he sunk down. Perhaps he was taken by his parents. I've read a couple, couple, uh, um, a, a couple of accounts of this, and one commentator says he was, a, he was a disobedient young man, and he went up there, and the Lord punished him, and uh, the Lord allowed Satan to push him off of that loft, and it was so bad that he interrupted Paul's sermon, and, and he went down, and Paul was angry, and Paul raised him from the dead. I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I'm, I've, I've done Sunday school class many for years here, and I remember at one, some point seeing there were six people asleep one point years ago. Doesn't doesn't bother me. It doesn't. I, I mean, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm elated about it, but you know, some people have rough nights. They have late nights, and they're tired, and they work. And there were six people. One was snoring, sitting right in that chair where you're at. I'm not going to mention any names. It wasn't you. It's never Lisey. but uh, it happens. And so basically, this young man, he fell asleep. And, you know, why not? They just had dinner. And they had big dinners back then. And he might have been, you know, had a lot to eat. And with all the smoke, all of a sudden, he just, he's out. He's gone and he's out. Pastor.
But they should. And I say in other things that uh, you know if they're excited about the things of the Lord, they will follow. That's right. That's where it really hits hard. It's the things you don't fall asleep at. If you do fall asleep at church, it's like sitting there watching your favorite show. You're not going to fall asleep. You know, you're sitting in a restaurant. I don't care what time it is, and you got your, your entree. And you're not going to fall asleep. It's usually when the preacher starts giving the gospel. That's when people start getting drowsy, especially at night. And so anyway, it happens. It ha- this is what happened to this young man. He, he, he slept, and we hope to think that nobody on the floor was sleeping. But my question is here, and I read and I tried to explore this. Maybe Pastor Olson, you can help with this. My question is, did he fall on the inside of the building or did he fall on the outside of the building? Because the inside of the building, there was lofts and there were shelves and there was all kinds of stuff that might have been in the way. I mean, he could have hit a lot of stuff on the way down. He died either way, but I have a feeling that he fell out on the other side of the window because they didn't have screening and they kept it open because of the smoke. But according to history, and if you read and you dig into this, they would open up in the high lofts, the windows, so that all of the ventilation, the smoke, would get out of the building. So there's a good chance that he just went back, feet, feet up in the air, and fell right on the front steps or fell right in the sidewalk. And he broke his neck. He probably broke it. doesn't say that, but that's usually what happens. And now here's the big question. It's the theological debate of today, just like, the burning bush was gas pockets underneath the bush. It wasn't really a miracle, and basically it was slow burning. It wasn't a miracle. The Red Sea is a reed sea. It's a big sandbar. I don't know how you're going to get thousands of pounds of equipment on wooden wheels through a bunch of mud, but they say that's not a miracle. So the question is, was Eutychus, Bene Fortunatus, was he really dead? Well, if you look at some of the, the verse coming up, it says, Paul says, his life is still in him, or his life is in him. Well, that doesn't mean he wasn't dead. You remember, this is, we're reading the second volume of a letter that's written to Theophilus from Dr. Luke that goes back to the book of Luke, and it picks up in the beginning of Acts where it leaves off at the end of Luke. And here, Dr. Luke is a medical advisor and a doctor, and he's there, and he said that this man is dead. Now it says, now if you go back and read some of the verses, it said we or us. There was a plural, plural word there. there. We see that Dr. Luke, no doubt, had, had hooked up back with Paul, and he was with Paul, and this man was declared dead as a doornail. He was dead. And so let's not confuse that with being in some kind of like a temporary coma, which shows how important this miracle is. Anybody, any questions, anything? Okay. Pastor. Absolutely. Very simple. I know other people don't, but he was dead. So, it's amazing how we can see that even today, that there are a lot of little Bible-believing churches like the one back then. And I, what I love about this is that this young man was in church that these parents brought this son, and this is a good lesson, the parents should bring their children to hear the Word of God. And I will sit here and applaud my wife for her faithfulness to our children. Even when she was rocking them in the womb, she would read the Bible to them and pray to them, knowing that they could hear it. And that's important. Getting the kids involved in church incredibly is, incre- is incredibly the most important thing they will ever do in their life. 
It teaches them respect. It teaches them how to honor the Lord. It teaches them how to honor authority. It teaches them the law of God. You get in the catechism, and the first question is, who is God? And I think that is important for them to learn. Who created you? Who is God? In the shorter catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him. This young man was at church, and he was at a Christian church. He wasn't at the synagogue. He wasn't at the Jewish temple. He wasn't involved in all these Roman pagan rituals. He was here to hear one of the greatest preachers that was ever on the face of this earth and who loved Jesus Christ. Go, go back to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. Lisi, could you look that up? Nehemiah 8, 2. And could I ask maybe Nancy, could you look up Deuteronomy chapter 29, 10? How important it is for young people to be in God's house. Amen. All that could hear, that means the families brought their kids and they were being taught. Deuteronomy 29.10, if you have it, Nancy, thank you. Can you read verses 11 and 12? I'm sorry, that was my second page. Thank you. Thank you. You see what it says there? We're talking about a worship service here. And the worship service consists of entering into a covenant with the Lord and His oath, obeying Him with the Lord thy God, making thee this day, and bring the children. Bring them and teach it to them. And this is what's happening. My wife would read the Bible to the kids when we were little. It was our first stages of homeschooling. Parents need to bring their kids to the sermons, and I know today that's almost unheard of. I think of that devastating book from Answers in Genesis is where, where I forget what it's called. I think it says, where did they all go? I think it's the title, where are all the kids? Well, this young man was there, even though he was asleep, he was there. You know, young boys love to explore, they love to climb, and they love to play sports, they like to be active, and we see how Eutychus gets up on the third law, if he reminds me of very important figure in American history. Today, he's nothing but maligned, made fun of, and all the memory is basically being torn down in every public place, which is a complete farce. But yesterday marked the anniversary, the birthday, 199 years when Stonewall Jackson was born on January 21st, 1824. And I can tell you right now, I don't care if I'm being recorded, I don't care if anybody goes in and tells, tells me, he was not a racist. He was not a racist. In fact, I've been to the school down, down in southern Maryland, and I've said this before, he and Robert E. Lee filled that place up every sun, Sunday with African-American kids, taught them the Bible, fed them, and it was so busy there that they even had to shut the doors. It was so incredibly populated, and they took care of them. And he was an adult Sunday school teacher, Stonewall Jackson was, and that's what he did. And he loved those children, he loved those families, and they took good care of them. And all this stuff you hear today is nothing but an absolute five-star lie. That man loved the Lord. He wouldn't even attack the northern aggression, which was nothing but the world order. On a Sabbath day, he wouldn't do it. Unless he was attacked, he would not attack them to honor the Lord. He would read the Bible. He would teach his people the Lord. He would teach the soldiers. And he would bring them to a godly standard. And that's what he did. Now, you're not going to read that in the textbooks today, but it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. 
He loved the Lord. And he, when he was a young man, he, and his, he was raised by his uncle. He had a tough childhood, and he was just very active like young men are. And he and his uh, cousin, I believe it was, they decided to make a little raft or a canoe, and they went down the Mississippi River. He left his uncle, went down for like a couple weeks. And that's, that's the kind of a young man that he was. George Washington was the same way when he was young, very, very active. And that's what this young man was. He was very active, got up in that loft, and we see that this sermon was in the evening after dinner. Many perhaps were very tired, but this young man would normally, <coughs> and, these, and these young ones may have gotten, t- after so many hours after eating, may have gotten very tired. And it was the dark of the evening. Perhaps the smoke rose. He fell down from the third loft and he was taken up dead. This was a great calamity. And I will say that it is amazing how Satan does find ways to interrupt messages and sermons. <laughs> He has his own way of just interrupting God's work. And this is kind of what happened. Even though Satan might have tried to rear his ugly head, Christ is always in control. It might have been a present distraction in the assembly where it turned out, how it turned out to be. But we see that this, this confirmation of Paul's pre- preaching and the effectual healing of Jesus Christ brings together the confirmation of the gospel of Christ and what can happen. The young man hit the ground and he was dead. Brings to memory in the Old Testament. Paul sees the young man. Maybe he was out in front of the door. Maybe he was in the side. I don't know. But he goes out and he throws himself over the young man. Does anybody remember anything like that happening in the Old Testament? Yes. It was the widow of Zarepta. Yeah. Right. Now this was in, that's actually another one. There's two. There's two of them. 1 Kings 17.21. Can somebody read that? 1 Kings 17.21 and 22. This is Elijah. This was Elisha's uh, mentor. And Elijah... He experiences this, and this young man is dead. He's not in a soul sleep. He's not in some kind of coma. He's not in a deep... He's dead. And look what happens here. First Kings 17, 21 and 22. Someone has it? The soul of the child came back into him. I'm dying to know where his soul was while he was laying there dead and what he saw, if he could see anything. That's up to the Lord, but I think that's fascinating. His soul returned to him. Now, we see it's very important to understand that we do have a soul and it does resurrect. And I remember reading about Rachel and uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, who loved him. It said that when she died at a young age, she had died, that her soul had departed from her. And here we see this happen. This is what happened with this young man. This incident with Elijah. We see this in, 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 in 2 Kings 4, verse 34. We see this also happen. And it says, And in order of the raising of the life from the dead, what would happen is Elisha would drape himself over the body of this young man, and he put his, he, he put his arms and his legs and all over the young man in order to pray, and he came, he came alive. Pastor. 
Right. They claim they do all the miracles in the Bible. They don't do that. That's a good point. I've never seen one at a funeral standing by a casket. I've never seen that. That's, that's, a real, that's a real manifestation of whether they can do what they say they can do. They can stand by a casket and get a dead body to jump out of that casket. Then I start believing them. But, only, but the only one that could do that is Christ. But remember, Elijah and Elisha, Elisha lays over this young man, and all of a sudden, like Lisi said, the little child starts coughing. I mean, sneezing. And all of a sudden, his life came into him, and Elisha did this. That's what Paul did. And one of the reasons I believe that Paul, he lays over just like Elijah and Elijah, that was a time to pray and to feel, he could feel the death of the baby, of, the, of this young man. And all of a sudden, in the, no doubt, Paul praying in the name of Jesus Christ, Eutychus, he comes back to life. You know, it's a big difference. Big difference between, it may not seem like that to some, but there was a big difference between what Elisha and Elijah and Paul did as opposed to what Christ did at the tomb of Lazarus. You read John eleven forty one. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Christ in and of himself had the power to raise the dead. Isn't that incredible? And he thanked the Father. Look at, how, look at the, the high regard that Christ puts on prayer. Thanking the Father that the Father would hear him. And here he is, God incarnate. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. See, the difference between our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the difference between Elijah, a great man, Elisha, a great man, Paul, wonderful missionary, none of them had the power to heal. It was of Christ that gave them that power. And Christ could do that in and of himself. We see how Paul inwardly and earnestly bowed over this young man and fell on the dead body, embraced Eutychus as a sign to represent the descent of the divine healing of God who put life into this dead young man. And Paul assured that his life had returned unto him. His life had not been in it. He died and his life returned unto him, just like the young men that we see with Elisha and Elijah. This is very important. Eutychus was not on a soul sleep or a state of, a state of coma. Think about some of the other miracles in the New Testament. And they're all wonderful. Jairus' daughter. Here Christ cleared out the professional mourners and told them to be quiet. And he goes in, holds a little girl's hand, raises a little 12-year-old girl from the dead. Jairus' daughter. Remember the widow of Nain's son. And he brings life into them. There were witnesses. The very fact that we are reading about this proves that there are incredibly incredible amount of witnesses. That this is not some metaphorical myth. We know it to be true. Dr. Luke lays out what happened to this young man, and we are assured that we, 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 are, we are assured that this young man was returned to a healthy body immediately. There was no therapy. He got up, Lisa.
Right. Right. That's true. Might have had a hard day at work. Yeah, the day before. Yeah. Right. Amen. It's a lot of, there's a lot of doctrine. It's a lot of lessons in there. And it does show, and it's the backup what you're talking about is the love that Paul had as we read into the end of, the end of Acts 20, which... I can't wait to get to that either. It shows how the people were absolutely, they were, they were stricken with grief in their hearts to see Paul leave and, to, and Paul to leave them. That's how much they loved him. He says he preached the whole council. Then they see this happening and it's no wonder they loved him so much. So we need to get moving here. But they broke bread together and they communed together to give Christ all the honor and glory and it was a matter of great rejoicing. It says here in verse 12, and they, and they brought the young man alive, and it says here, which is a wonderful way of writing this, were not a little comforted. They were comforted in the gospel. They loved what happened. This was a manifestation of everything that Paul had preached about resurrection and the resurrection of Christ and about how the gospel of Christ going from his ministry to his death, burial, and resurrection. This is a manifestation of the truth of it. If Paul, by the power of Christ, had the power to, to raise a young man from the dead, there's your resurrection. There's another living proof of a resurrection. And all, there, there are many don't believe that today. We will be resurrected with Christ. He says he will, and there's no doubt about it. And so as we, we'll see next week, as we move, or uh, we'll see as we go forward, that uh, Paul continues on his journey. He continues to... Spread the gospel. We'll see some more areas that he goes, but then we see a real love for him in the church when he gets ready to leave. Let's um, let's finish with prayer. I say, like I ask, uh, uh, brother Charlie, could you close us this morning? Thank you.